In this session, we're going to talk about anticipating a microchurch network. Now, the assumption here is that you haven't really built a microchurch network. Maybe you've got something going on really well inside the church, but now we're talking about using microchurch as a tool for actually planting autonomous churches. And so as we think about this and approach this whole discussion, I want to talk about crisis a little bit and how that uh, crisis precedes renewal, but it doesn't always trigger it. Uh, persecution in Acts chapter 8 um, preceded the renewal that went on when everybody except for the apostles left Jerusalem and went everywhere doing what they should do. We've just come through a crisis and, and one thing about crisis is that it tends to reveal vulnerabilities, places where we're weak, places where we should grow. P pandemic certainly did this. Um, American church is so Sunday-centric, so built on big meetings, so built on uh, an event rather than building relationships. And so we, we're now in the, in the mode where everybody is really beginning to think, I mean, some people have really thrived during the pandemic, and they thrived because they had built networks of microchurches, usually inside their congregation. I know of a few churches that have actually planted during this time, and it's been a very good thing. But the one thing that we got to think about in building a network is that a smattering of microchurches or a smattering of churches, for that matter, doesn't really work very well. It's not all that sustainable. Uh, one point of information is that we did a horrible job of networking the churches that we planted in Hope Chapel. Yeah, they were big. Some of them are huge. Uh, but we had it in our DNA to hand them off to somebody else early on. And then we just didn't do that much in terms of gathering people together. It would have been logistically very, very difficult to bring people from all over the planet. With today's tools, it'd be very easy to do that. Uh, 23, 2400 churches, but probably more in groups of two or 300. We could have done it. We just didn't know that we could have done it. And we could do it easier today than we could have done it then. The, the, the problem is that there isn't a sustainability at the core. Uh, the, the big church in Hermosa is still planting churches. The church that I pastored in Kaneohe has stopped planting churches. We never built a network around that, and we're suffering as a result. Church planting is still going on, multiplication at the fringes and in, and in the inner circles, but it's not going on where it really ought to go on. And so as we get to thinking about crisis here, the pandemic is a natural bridge into the next step which is actually an old step. We've talked about it over and over, and that's returning to the New Testament as a model. <clears throat> and so I want you to think about chaos and New Testament networks. Church really began in Galilee. You know, Jesus was a Jew born in Judea. That's where Bethlehem is. Uh, but he was really a product of Galilee. He grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. We know that uh, the, the people in Galilee genetically are related to the Samaritans, uh, the Samaritans are hated by the Jews. The people in Galilee pretty much picked up on the, the, the doctrine of the Torah from the people in Jerusalem, the Jews. So the people in Samaria hated them. They were a people under themselves. And Jesus had a, a lot of success there, and he would have had to build a network. I mean, the Samaritan woman at the well is a really good picture of a person of peace. You don't see much else in Samaria during the time that Jesus was there. But you do see the sending of the 12, you see the sending of the 72, uh, you get the picture of the 10 cities, Decapolis and, 
and Jesus headquarters in Capernaum. And so there, there's a sense of a network. There's a sense of a center to it all. And of course, then he preached in Jerusalem, Judea. But, you know, it's so easy to focus on the arguments with the Pharisees there that you see that as the main frame. The main frame was actually what went on in Galilee. And then the church got its, you know, dug in, got its roots going in Jerusalem and throughout Judea, and then crisis hit in the form of persecution. After that, then the, there, there's a chaotic movement. And why the word chaos, I don't mean uh, like something evil is going on. I just mean it's just, just helter-skelter. It's all over the place. And so the gospel moves we see into Samaria and Ethiopia, still in the eighth chapter of Acts. And then it gets throughout the Mediterranean world and all the way back into Antioch and Syria. And what I think a lot of us fail to understand is Antioch was a major trade center. Uh, it was a place where people of different languages came together. Uh, it, was, it was the capital of that part of the Roman Empire at that time. And it had huge influence in terms of just a popular influence, but it became the center of the church after Jerusalem ceased to be the center of the church. It's a picture that we read in Acts chapter 13, but it went on for centuries from there. The gospel then goes into Galatia. When you read the book of Galatians, you're actually reading about Acts chapter 14, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, those cities. And then we see the gospel in, in Ephesus, and we understand there's more than 200 microchurches that took place in Ephesus, some of them perhaps quite large. The event at the school of uh, Tyrannus in Acts chapter 19, where the gospel is heard throughout Asia, which would be basically Turkey today. Uh, we read about Corinth and all the Christians scattered throughout the world in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And so, uh, again, here's a center, a locus of Christianity, Corinth itself, and then whatever went out from Corinth. And so, again, we're looking at networking. And, of course, when we get to the 16th chapter of Romans, we understand that there's churches meeting in homes and there's all these people throughout Rome and they're under uh, the, the watchful eye of the government. So there's a certain amount of persecution going on there. Again, we're seeing a locus, a center and a network. And so I just want to kind of grind this into you. I know that you're hungry if you're this far into this material to build a network of microchurches, hopefully becoming larger churches. But I just really think we got to come from the New Testament or we don't really have place to come from at all. I want to define a leader. A leader is a person who defines reality. See, I just did it. I set out a definition for you as the person who's leading this course. And so I want to talk about a leader defining reality. And Jesus defined reality in terms of leadership as servanthood. I think it's also reality in terms of the church. The church should pose itself as a servant, not trying to control society, uh, but trying to dominate it through love and through service. And so creativity emerges, innovation emerges whenever leadership really begins to understand the role of servanthood. Because as people do little different strange things, perhaps in chaotic times, well, then those things can blossom and turn into something that we look in the rearview mirror and call innovation. If we're in control, then basically our job is to suppress all these things. And so your job is to define reality for your people. That means that you got to lay down a doctrinal position. You got to lay down a model. You got to enact a model, live it out. And then you got to recruit other people to go where you're trying to go. As we go a little further in this, I want to talk about five successful 
network characteristics. The first is that a network should be built for protection and utility, not for conquest. Again, the, the idea of being a servant, uh, we, we do need networks to protect ourselves from the political whatevers that are out there, but we need mostly utility. We, how do we build relationships? How do we train people? How do we release people? How do we relate to people once they've been trained and released? Correctly focused, this is the second one, they, they will multiply continuously. Uh, that is very, very important. Uh, they are necessary to train and undergird new leadership. I'm becoming a little redundant here, but I think you get the picture. They work best when they're serving and giving with an outward focus, and they work worse when they're designed to control people and to take in people. A lot of folks that are interested in microchurch right now are interested in how do we build a network to get more people involved so we get more people involved in what we're doing on the weekend. That's not the purpose. That's not the plan. I know people that are building um, uh, semi-autonomous microchurch networks, and it's about their ego. Uh, they're the leader of this movement of whatever. Not a good idea. And the real last thing that we got to talk about here is that networks really work best when they're scalable, when there is no limitation on possible growth. And when I mean scalable, I, I'm not talking about the United States. I mean, obviously, I'm talking about the United States. But I'm talking about, can this work in, in the poor countries of Africa? Uh, would it be possible for this to work as we once did in Antarctica? Could you do this in China, where persecution is, is, is building and building and building against the church? A, a, a true and a successful network is going to be able to operate under all of those conditions. And so we need to probably think what could work in the most primitive conditions or the most persecuted conditions and what worked in the New Testament. If we could add that together, primitive, persecuted, and New Testament, and then apply that to where we are, we probably are going to have a real formula for success. I'm going to talk a little bit about adaptive technology and networks. And the, the very birth of the real Jesus movement way back, you know, two millennia ago, saw adaptive technological changes. Now I'm pushing this one a little bit hard, so just kind of ride with me. But in Galilee, it was, it was preaching, it was the miraculous, and it was walking. Uh, we get to Jerusalem, uh, there's not a whole lot to show for it, really. There's 120 people after three years of ministry in Jerusalem. It's not a mega church at that point. Uh, there's miracles. There's learning mostly by debate, if you get into that. And then, again, there's walking. Uh, once the gospel gets to Samaria and Ethiopia post-crisis, it's, it's about teaching. There's miracles involved. And, again, walking. And I just read an interesting commentary. I'm reading a commentary uh, on the Aramaic New Testament. And it suggests that when um, Philip was caught away in the spirit, that he actually wasn't just transposed to another location, that it really is talking about the spirit speaking to his heart and leading him to a new place. And there would be walking as well. But if he was just transposed in the spirit, well, I suppose that's a whole other technology that we don't really have access to, at least on an everyday basis. And then finally, as the gospel gets into Antioch and the Mediterranean, there are miracles that are attendant to the gospel, not only pre-Antioch, but post-Antioch, especially there are miracles. But now we're looking at travel by ship, which is a new technology introduced to 
just networking the gospel. And there's the advent of letters, something that we didn't see in the gospels we see toward the end of Acts. And so we see this kind of metamorphosis of the gospel moving and taking advantage of technology. So I want to talk about missional networking technology and how it has evolved over the centuries. It's gone from walking to word of mouth to ships and mail. Now we're still in the book of Acts to a few centuries later, something called the printing press. And then again, centuries later, but now time is beginning to condense itself a little bit. And we get to the telegraph and the telephone, which were amazing technologies in their day something that we take for granted. I was watching a TV show the other day and somebody made the comment about a cell phone and they go, oh, people actually, use, they, they make telephone calls on this because we've learned to do so many other things on those little computers in our pockets. And then we come to the era of fax and email. And I, I wanna stop and talk a minute about fax machines. When I was working at the, at the, the epitome, now I go to Japan about once a year, but for a while I was there five times a year. Once I did a five-day seminar in Japan, flew home to be a guest preacher in my own church, flew right back to Japan and did another five-day seminar. But five days is also the time it took for a letter to get from the United States to Japan. Give a person a day or two to answer, and then it takes another five days to get a letter back. Uh, that was excruciating when you're trying to work with people because we were building networks in Japan. And so the Japanese people uh, started buying fax machines in their homes. We had them in our offices, but who had ever thought of it in their home? Well, I did because of my relationship with the Japanese people. And this incredible breakthrough, it allowed me to put my thoughts down on a document, send it off to my friend, it would get there quickly, which was the powerful thing. But then at will, they could open it, they could re respond to it whenever they chose to, and then it would instantaneously come back to me. Huge technology breakthrough, uh, really the precursor of email. I remember when we got email and I fought against it because I thought I got so many people vying for my time. I'm doing the fax machine with my friends in Japan. I'm actually faxing a few people in Hawaii and the United States by now because others had caught up on this. And then email comes along and I'm thinking everybody and their cousin is going to get to me. I want nothing to do with this. Well, of course, that's changed. But there's this kind of a an, an attitude that some of us have for you know, we don't want to move with technology. It's moving too fast or uh, it's too disruptive. We don't want it. And that's kind of uh, what happens when you start moving into the next three technologies, which have come very, very rapidly. I mean, from walking to ships, uh, we're looking at several years from ships and mail to the printing press, or we're looking at over a millennial millennium, we're looking at several centuries before we get to telephone and telegraph. And then fax and email are a number of years later, then we hit live stream. Our church was doing live stream. We called it our online church. And we, we had made a big deal of the technology because we didn't have Zoom. Uh, we didn't have chat rooms. We didn't have any of that. And so we would run a, a live, like a live open email account going on with somebody in a room with other people who are producing the video, which is actually a four camera operation while our church service was going on. And that person was called the video pastor and they could sit in that room and answer emails and talk to people before the technology that we own today was there. 
And then, of course, there comes interactive video, and most of us think of Zoom. And this is where the most resistance is today. And this is actually where the liberty to build and maintain a network exists in spades today. You know, back when I was pastoring uh, in, around the year 2000, just before that we invented the live stream thing, and I had the fax machine going, we didn't have a network going across America. I was running a little website. I think it was a blog site, something called uh, uh, churchplanters.net, something like that. And I had about 500 people in that, but it certainly wasn't a Hope Chapel network. We just weren't there. And then uh, I got the fax machine. We're running networks inside of Japan. But to scale in either of those up to where you're thinking of a couple thousand churches would have just been impossible. But now with interactive video, uh, particularly if we're thinking of concentric circles, I'm working with these guys and they're working with these guys and they're working with these guys. We could easily do this. The technology is there. And yet I, I find a lot of people struggling against it, particularly pastors in local churches. I mean, to me, the uh, best thing that happened pre-pandemic was that Zoom came along because it set us up to survive that thing. If I was pastoring, I would be doing live Zoom call church on the weekend. And then I would be busting people up into, you know, micro churches within the church all on Zoom. And I'd spend intensive time with the leaders by using Zoom and my cell phone. I'd be talking to these people. I would become the center of a network, which is something I really never did. I was the center of a movement. I never really became the center of a, net, of a, of a network outside the church. Inside the church, yeah, I was. Outside the church, we failed miserably. So I want to talk a little bit about networks operating from a center or, or a locus. So if you go back to what we've been talking about earlier, Jesus was the center in the cities called Decapolis, the 10 cities, and especially in Capernaum, which Capernaum, which was his home base. Uh, Jerusalem, as the church evolved after Pentecost, obviously had a central nervous system in the apostles who were there, because as you read in Acts chapter 2, everything is built off of the teaching of the apostles. And then there's the nervous system. Uh, the centrality is Antioch at this point, because uh, the, the, the shift, the, the Jews basically rejected Christianity, the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, in fact, if you read very closely Acts chapter 2, it's probably Jewish people from other cultures who are there, who hear the gospel from Peter and are converted. Then they go back to the other cultures. There's openness in these other places, but particularly uh, if we read history uh, throughout Syria and the ancient Assyrian Empire, uh, including Iraq. And so the nervous system in the provinces included the travels and the letters of the traveling apostles. Uh, again, ships in the mail. Paul displays an awareness of a larger network. I talked about this earlier when he greets the Christians in Corinth and, and he greets them in this way to all God's people together with all people everywhere who worship our Lord. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. This suggests to me that the Corinthian church didn't just major in spiritual gifts. Uh, they had done some church multiplication. Something good was going on in Corinth. And then you just cannot ignore the disciple-making uh, hub that was the, the lecture hall of Tyrannus and, and how the gospel spread, it says, throughout all of Asia. Because they're having these dialogues daily in, in this school. Uh, and, and by the way, it wasn't a seminary. It wasn't a school. 
it was a borrowed or rented hall in a school. Uh, there is no justification for a school as a formal training tool in the New Testament. Not that we shouldn't have them, but not that, but for certain, the New Testament doesn't demand them. And so as we talk a little bit about networking toward your future, I want to talk about inward and outward for just a moment. And uh, uh, two examples. Uh, we have a big church in Kaneohe, a couple thousand people. We had a big Hope Chapel in another town in Hawaii called Kihei. And uh, Kihei started out before we did, about three or four years before we launched, they launched. They launched from Hermosa Beach, as we did. And uh, the guy who was a pastor was on staff in Hermosa Beach. Uh, they went through some extreme poverty in the early days. Kihei is a, a vacation hotspot in the winter, and in the summer, it's a dead place. And so it was very difficult for these people. And, and uh, they immediately began to plant churches. But then they began to focus inwardly. And, and it wasn't a bad thing that they did. It just wasn't as good as it could have been. Uh, they focused on making strong disciples. They focused on apologetics. They were really great at teaching apologetics. I remember one person I was with who was a friend of mine in one of their microchurches inside, you know, saying, I don't like it when new people come to our thing because I, I, we just love our friends so much and new people are so disruptive. The, the focus had somehow without probably intent turned inward and they started about five churches and that was the end of it. In Kaneohe, uh, we pressed pedal to the metal about we're going outward. We're going to raise up people. This whole thing is vertically integrated. You come in the door. We're trying to figure out how to get you into a microchurch. We're trying to figure out how to get you to lead a microchurch. From there, we're trying to get you to figure out how to plant a microchurch. From there, we want you to become a church planter on the outside and maybe a missionary to another country. And as a result, thousands of churches exist in the world today. Your focus is really important. Are you thinking about building that Sunday thing? Or are you thinking about reaching into different people groups in the neighborhood, in the community, in the surrounding communities through the microchurches that you plant? Because if you are, and you're on your way to a network. There's a little church that we have in Okinawa. It's outside the back gate of Camp Foster, if you've ever been in the military and been to Okinawa. Uh, it's been there since about the year 1984. Uh, the guy was in the Marine Corps. Uh, there's mental illness in his family. He's dyslexic. He thought that meant that he was mentally ill. He can't read right. And so he, he goes to uh, take the test for the Marine Corps. He gets a buddy to take the test and they put each other's names on the test. And of course, the buddy passed. My friend failed. But the buddy had my friend's name on it, so my friend got in the Marine Corps. Uh, later on, after he became a believer, he went and confessed to them. He was a stellar Marine. They forgave him very quickly. But he ends up in our church in Hawaii. He found the Lord through a suicide attempt in Okinawa, uh, very depressed. Uh, got involved in a church there, a very small church, did really well. Uh, was a gunny sergeant by the time he got to us in Hawaii. Uh, ran our children's church for about three years. A miracle happened. We prayed. Uh, Hawaii is considered overseas duty in the Marine Corps. So is Okinawa. He comes from Okinawa, where he's married a woman there, to our church, which is now another overseas duty station, back to Okinawa, which is an overseas duty station. And he'll muster out after his career in Okinawa, which they don't usually let you do. They put you somewhere close to where you started. He would grow up in Boston. The Marines would have put him somewhere on the East Coast. We prayed. He got to go there. He planted a church while he's still in the Marine Corps. He got caught one day 
uh, talking on the phone by his superior officer, uh, doing a church call on the phone. And, and the guy stands there and scowls at him until he gets off the phone and then, you know, demands was that a church phone call and, and he admits it and a guy gets a big scowl on his face and says, look, look, there's a problem here and the problem is I want to see your business card. He hands him his little church business card and the guy goes, that phone number belongs on this card. You're doing a lot of good to guys in the Marines. And man, here we got a bivocational pastor off to the races, but very outward in his thinking. This little church will grow to 80 people when it swells up. And then there's a, a difference in deployment. A lot of people move away. Sometimes it shrinks back to 20 people. It's got a Japanese language congregation. It stays pretty stagnant, about 20. But the Caucasian congregation is up and down, up and down, up and down. These people have started eight churches. They're in, in the East Coast of the United States. They're in Thailand, they're in the Philippines, they're all over Okinawa, and they're in mainland Japan, a church of 80 people. Now, what's happened? Well, he discovered that as guys retire out of the military, and he's got Air Force guys, he's got Marine guys, uh, he's got Navy people. As they retire out of the military, they make really good church planters, and he trains them how to do that inside of his church. So here's a tiny church with an outward focus. It's got an immense network going uh, for its size. Pretty, pretty exciting thing. I want to point out again that I failed to really build a network apparatus, and we're paying a price for it right now. The movement still grows, but at the core of the movement, things have changed, and I have no voice to speak into that because everybody is totally autonomous. Mistake on my part. In Japan, where we did build networks, we're very strong in the Tokyo area. Uh, we're, we're holding now conferences for people outside of our networks, and the networking thing has paid off really, really well. Our biggest church failed to network. Uh, they were in, they're in Kobe, and uh, they have a new pastor. Pastor passed away, and they're growing again, but to get them to the point where they begin to really focus outward is difficult. One of their daughter churches, which they almost didn't want to plant when it happened, but 11 years in, began planting churches. And my friend Fumichito now has planted four churches. And by the way, the pandemic became a blessing to them. They had their biggest year financially ever. Uh, a lot of their people, uh, just naturally, because they were doing microchurch inside the church, the thing just blossomed on on Zoom. And, and, and now they're looking to plant more churches. Uh, they're just trying to figure out where they are coming out of COVID. The question that I have for you is, how can you build or strengthen what remains? It's Paul's um, message to Titus in the first part of Titus to go back and strengthen what remains. How can you build or strengthen what remains by strengthening your network ties or by building network systems before you begin planting churches? I so wish that I had done that. Let's talk a little bit about network mechanics. I want you to see this as more of a hodgepodge chaotic, and I'm going to say blending of a ribbon and rather than a neat hierarchy. In other words, it's kind of a circle that just keeps expanding and growing as it goes. And what I'm really saying is that they are messy. People are not going to be in one slot. They're going to be in two or three slots. And so there's a blending. There's an overlap. There's you know just a, a little bit of messiness that you have to be a caretaker of. In other words, you just got to think this thing through all the time and relate to people in different ways in different situations and allow for this to happen because it's part of the Spirit's work in the church. It starts with Jesus and you, and, and your job is to define reality and define a biblical reality for your people. And then 
it starts with your three, your Peter, James, and John, which might be six or seven people, but I think it's very representative. And this is the close-up and personal heart of any movement. These are the people you need to really pour your life and your thoughts and your questions and your failures and your successes into over time. And then comes your 12. And I'm thinking here of your staff. So my 12 was 25 people, 26 people when I was in Kaneohe. Uh, these people are going to oversee the mechanics of whatever it is that you're doing. But the problem is they tend to see limitations more often than they see opportunities. Now, my staff did pretty well because we brainwashed them right from the start. And they mostly came through the door of they became an apprentice in a microchurch and they worked their way up and then they ended up on staff. But there's this tendency of staff to always look at budget before they look at power and think of the miraculous. They're, they're worrying about things. And so you got to deal with that. Your congregation, and this is your 120. Uh, in, you know, Jesus had three, he had 12, he had 120. These are the people um, who are going to be like those who fled Jerusalem and went someplace. And by congregation here, I mean your congregation of people who are thinking about what you're thinking about, not that audience of people who hear you on the weekend. I'm talking about your congregation, the people that you're, you're pouring this kind of stuff into, and they are going to become the church planters out there. And then your world, and this is the church plants that are out there, and this is where you really got to do what I didn't do so well, and that's to build a strong communication network. I want to talk just a little bit about what gets measured, gets done, comes right out of Peter Drucker. And, and so here's what I think you need to be measuring. There's a lot of things we could put on a dashboard to measure, but the things that I think you really need to measure are that you could name your three and name your 12. You know, who are the three who are closest to you? Who are the 12? And that, again, that list of 12 might be to, to 25 and three might be five or six or seven or whatever. That you could list your internal microchurches, the pastor's names and the names of their apprentices. You need to know what's going on. You need to know how many apprentices are on deck to go plant a new microchurch. Uh, how many um, microchurch pastors don't have an apprentice? Uh, those are the kinds of things that have to get measured. And that it's not just you doing the measurement. It's these people measuring and reporting to you that's going to get you someplace. In the first list, name your three and your 12. Well, that one's up to you. But in the second list, it's now where you begin to review people. Performance reviews of staff members in Hope Chapel always included these kinds of questions. And then you need to measure and you need to be public in this measurement with your congregation. We did an annual report that was pretty important to our people about the number of external microchurches in here. Uh, you're thinking about the, the planters that are out there. And by name, I always think of them more by the name of the church, the pastor, than I do the name of the church. But then also, you, you need to be thinking who's on deck, who's potential. And then I want to leave you with these questions. Which three tasks must you accomplish to lay a legitimate path toward multiplying microchurches. What, what are the top three things that you need to be doing that you haven't been doing that are gonna take you a step down the road toward building microchurch networks? Here's what we know. About 80% of those people who are actually reproducing churches are not building networks. That's not good. I hope that's not you.